Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History, podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Rush Limbaugh is dead, and too many of the obituaries are crediting or blaming him for the hate-filled, fact-challenged political discourse poisoning American politics. But that's just too simplistic. Limbaugh was a frontman, the end product of a decades-long history that I recounted in the following BBC documentary, which I made in September 2020. It's about Rush, but it's also about the history of broadcasting and its unique power to shape discourse. The documentary is long, so I won't come back after it's over. I'll do the commercial now. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation. They really do help me keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. Sometimes history can turn on a tiny change in the rules. On August 4, 1987, America's Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, met in Washington to consider changing a broadcast regulation. Commissioners, first on our mass media agenda is item number one, an inquiry into alternatives to the general fairness doctrine uh, obligation. And for a presentation of that item, we will call upon our acting chief, Mr. Bill Johnson. Bill? Eleven minutes later, the gavel came down on an era. So if there are no other questions or comments, we will vote this item. All those in favor, say aye. Aye. Uh, All those opposed, no. The ayes have it. So ordered. The Fairness Doctrine repealed, American broadcasting and American history would never be the same. Oh, get off the phone, you little weasel, you little creep, you little skunk. Punch your nose right down your throat. Why are white people of European origin the only people who don't seem to vote based on race? Is it because they're more tolerant? Is it because whites of European origin are more accepting and more tolerant of other races? I wonder if they're going to be that way once they find out that uh, not all, uh, let's say, not all people love them as much as they may think. Charles, Barack Obama is president of the United States today because of stupid, ignorant people who think like you do. We see right through their facade. You know why they call him the Joker? Because it's a big joke to them that they're poisoning your water supply and that your children are deformed and get cancer when they're 10 years old because it's a big joke to the new world order all the things they're doing to you and how childlike you are we're screwed there's no baseline for the truth anymore but it wasn't always this way the fairness doctrine a rule in place from 1949 to 1987 was an obligation on commercial broadcasters to provide fair coverage of controversial issues of public interest the repeal of the fairness doctrine led to a coarsening of the airwaves and public discourse and entrenched division in the u.s the story begins nearly a century ago, when radio, the internet of its time, was a new tool for communication that businesses and governments in the U.S. and Great Britain were vying to be in charge of. Professor Gene Seaton is the official historian of the BBC. In America, they just say, let everybody start to broadcast. And lots of little start firms start up and they start to broadcast. They have three, as it were, qualities, one of which is there are a lot of them, so there's a lot of varieties, so that's good. Secondly, they're in competition, which sounds good, 
but uh, sadly, they're in competition literally for airspace for you to hear. So they start to jam each other unintentionally. They jam each other so you can't pick them up. And thirdly, as any commercial service will do, they start where there are populations that advertisers are interested in. They serve communities which they can make money out of. And the British government looks at what's happening in America. So what we'll have is a nice single company that will do things in a way that we can see. And this will be a better service to the public. And also it'll be a more centralised, rational thing to do. And so the BBC was born, funded through a government-levied licence fee and with a gentlemanly understanding of arm's-length independence. Here is the last news bulletin for today. The following items of news indicate the general situation in the country. Copyright in these items is reserved outside the British Isles. There was a real anxiety about business buying opinion. So the American solution is let lots of businesses have it. The British solution is we're not going to have business controlling opinion by being able to buy influence. So we're going to turn it into a public service. Similar worries about the owners of radio stations influencing opinion were voiced in Congress. American thought and American politics will be largely at the mercy of those who operate these stations, for publicity is the most powerful weapon that can be wielded in a republic. And when such a weapon is placed in the hands of one person or a single selfish group is permitted to either tacitly or otherwise acquire ownership or dominate these broadcasting stations throughout the country, then woe be to those who dare to differ with them. It will be impossible to compete with them in reaching the ears of the American people. Representative Luther Johnson, Democrat, Texas. In 1927, the Radio Act was passed. It brought to an end the Wild West free-for-all in broadcasting. The radio spectrum was parceled up and licensed out to entrepreneurs. The FCC was established in 1934 as the government's bureaucratic overseer of the broadcasting business. In the aftermath of World War II, there was a re-examination of broadcasting's role in the lead-up to the conflict. In 1949, the FCC introduced the Fairness Doctrine, a set of obligations imposed on broadcast license holders, explains political scientist and former network news producer Frankie Clogston. That time it was to provide balanced views in the name of the so-called public interest, to provide news uh, in a fair and balanced manner. The idea was that you needed to give equal time to uh, different points of view. If, for example, you had a Republican on the radio, uh, you should have a Democrat on the radio. The Fairness Doctrine is essentially a legal brief, and the word doctrine never appears in it. In the matter of editorializing by broadcast licensees, docket number 8516, Report of the Commission. To affirm the obligation of the licensees to ensure that a fair and equal presentation of all sides of controversial issues is made over their facilities. Broadcast licensees have an affirmative duty generally to encourage and implement the broadcast of all sides of controversial public issues. 
The justification for the Fairness Doctrine could be found in the years leading up to the war. As in Europe, America was not immune to populist demagogues using the airwaves. As war loomed, the demagogues spread isolationist messages unopposed. Most notorious was Father Charles Coughlin, whose weekly broadcasts from his Church of the Little Flower in Michigan was listened to by one in five Americans. Father Coughlin's isolationism was dyed in anti-Semitism, as in this 1938 broadcast, a few days after Kristallnacht. In all countries, Jews are in the minority. They have no nation of their own. They have no flag. The World Almanac states that there are only 15 million Jews in all the world, and only 4 million resident in North America. Coughlin goes on to wonder at the tightly woven clannishness of Jews and their ambition that has given them dominance of journalism, broadcasting and finance, and suggests to his audience that this might be the reason for all the coverage of Kristallnacht, which in his eyes emphasizes the financial value of destroyed Jewish property in Germany. Thus with these facilities at their disposal, no story of persecution was ever told one half so well one half so thoroughly, as the story of this $400 million reprisal which culminated a series of persecutions. Perhaps, may I resubmit, this is attributable to the fact that Jews, through their native ability, have risen to such high places in radio and in press and in finance. Perhaps this persecution is only the coincidental last straw which has broken the back of this generation's patience. A popular voice of isolationism with a listenership in the tens of millions was the unlikely figure of Englishman Boke Carter. Hello, everyone. Boke Carter speaking. Well, Germany, Italy, and Japan have signed an agreement, as we know. The agreement specifies that should any nation not now engaged in the war enter the war in Europe, those three nations will come to the aid of each other. Well, it is obvious that the agreement was aimed chiefly at the United States. Now, why was it aimed at us? For no other reason than perhaps the policy of consistent and persistent meddling in European power politics that has been followed by the administration in Washington. The Fairness Doctrine became a regulation, just as radio was about to be superseded as the dominant form of broadcasting by television. And, as in the 1920s, there was a lot of discussion about how the new medium should develop, what its purpose should be. The experience of World War II shaped that discussion. Edward R. Murrow had broadcast back to America live from London during the Blitz. After the war, he became the founding father of television news. In 1958, Murrow gave a speech to the radio and television news directors of America. I am not here talking about editorializing, but about straightaway exposition. As direct, unadorned, and impartial as fallible human beings can make it. Just once in a while, let us exalt the importance of ideas and information. Murrow concluded, This instrument can teach, it can illuminate, yes, and even it can inspire. But it can do so only to the extent that humans are determined to use it to those ends. Otherwise, it's nothing but wires and lights in a box. 
Murrow's words became engraved like bronze tablets in broadcast newsrooms. But as the 60s went on, criticism of news rose. Where was the fairness in the left-wing slant of the news, Ezra Benson wanted to know. Benson served as agriculture secretary in President Dwight Eisenhower's cabinet and then became an ardent proselytizer for the John Birch Society, the organization that gave birth to much of modern American conservatism. By 1962, these American liberals had almost completely neutralized the insurgence, the resurgence of American patriotism. They had frightened uninformed citizens away from study groups and patriotic rallies. They had made it popular to call patri uh, patriotism a controversial subject, which should not be discussed in school assemblies or churches. From Washington, D.C., the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, issued an edict to radio and television stations that if they allowed the controversial subjects of Americanism, anti-communism, or states' rights to be discussed on their stations, they would be required to give equal time free of charge to anyone wishing to present an opposite view. The Fairness Doctrine came under fire. It was an obligation on local stations, but it had become a way to target network news. Confused? American broadcasting is organized similarly to British drinking. The individual stations affiliate themselves to a network, which provides programming in the same way that a tied public house carries brands of beer from a particular brewery. The doctrine was an obligation on the individual stations, not the networks. But that didn't matter to the critics. In America, in the 1960s, there were three main networks. Each provided a half-hour evening newscast, airing at 6.30 or 7 p.m. So conservatives had long complained uh, that what we now call the, the mainstream media uh, was, was biased against them. Kevin Cruz, professor of history at Princeton University. Uh, that the Fairness Doctrine didn't promote objectivity and instead parroted uh, a line pushed by the liberal establishment. Uh, this is a complaint that uh, gained real power uh, in the hands of uh, Vice President Spiro Agnew. A raised eyebrow, an inflection of the voice, a caustic remark dropped in the middle of a broadcast can raise doubts in a million minds about the veracity of a public official or the wisdom of a government policy. The questions I'm raising here tonight should have been raised by others long ago. They should have been raised by those Americans who have traditionally considered the preservation of freedom of speech and freedom of the press their special provinces of responsibility. They, they should have been raised by those Americans who share the view of the late Justice Learned Hand that right conclusions are more likely to be gathered out of a multitude of tongues than through any kind of authoritative selection. And it sets a pattern for conservative politics uh, that maintains throughout the 1970s and 80s. And so the Reagan administration, in some ways the heirs of what uh, the Nixon administration had set down, finally gets around to changing these policies that conservatives had long complained about. Were the complaints well-founded? Conservative voices were heard, but again, usually in balance with a, a liberal voice. And so you had programs, you know, like 60 Minutes that had the kind of point-counterpoint approach where they would air two sides in a debate. Uh, but the conservative complaint was that, aside from those programs, network news anchors pretended 
to embrace a sort of objectivity, but it was an objectivity that came out of their own perspectives. It was an objectivity that seemed objective in, say, the media centers of New York City uh, and might not have seemed uh, to present all views to, say, a white conservative living in Southern California or Mississippi, right? That there were, were certain things that they thought of that weren't a part of this conversation, certain values that they objected to that were presented as, as normal, uh, and that was their real complaint. Network news and primetime programming only took up a small part of the day. Stations ran programs made locally or bought in from independent providers. And this is where conservative views broke through. The Fairness Doctrine only mandated that all sides of controversial issues be presented, and they didn't have to be presented face-to-face -face or in roundtable discussions. So that didn't stop broadcasts that came from politically partisan positions so long as they balanced out over the course of a broadcasting day. So on television, there was William F. Buckley with his program Firing Line to disseminate conservative viewpoints. Firing Line was never conceived as an interview. It was conceived, and indeed the original contract specifically, uh, called for an exchange of opinion. The idea was that a conservative position on many matters of public policy tends to be ignored or trivialized in a mighty communications industry wired to the pressure points of contemporary and even trendy American liberalism. There is a prevailing bias, and it is liberal. And it is, of course, another question of whether we deplore it or not. I do, and you, you do not. But would you, would you go so far as to agree, therefore, that in point of fact, so obsessed is the thinking community by the rightness uh, of its views uh, that it tends to treat differing views uh, uh, irresponsibly. That is to say, it tends to recoil with such horror at what they consider to be uh, an act, really, of, uh, of impiety at questioning their premises, which they prefer to leave undisturbed, that I, they lash out rather irrationally under the circumstances. Yes, I would agree that there is essentially a communications <clears throat> gap, I would call it in this country, between the mainstream and the tributaries of American thought. The dissenter, whether he be the antediluvian flippity-gibbet of your group, or whether he be the protester against the South Vietnam War in the street, is made to appear as a kook and a freak and a curio and sometimes maniacal. I think that's quite wrong. Good manners didn't always prevail when Buckley was on camera. During the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, he was paired with novelist Gore Vidal, a voice of the left, to discuss events. It was supposed to be the fairness doctrine in action. But I assume that the point of the American yeah. democracy and some is you can express any point of view you want. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people will follow Nazi, and the answer is that they were, they were well-treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro- or crypto-Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Uh, Failing that, let's, I would let's, only let's say that we negative. can't have now listen, you the right of assembly Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling names. I'll you and in your goddamn face, and you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's... Let the author of go back to his pornography and stop making any allusions of Nazi I to somebody who was too. in the infantry in the last war. You were and not in the infantry, Nazi, as a matter of fact. Like like Conservative voices did dominate in local radio. Hello, Americans. This is Paul Harvey, in part brought to you by the First Federal Savings and Loan Association of Lima. Stand by for news. 
Paul Harvey, Heartland Conservatism personified. For 50 years, he was syndicated at radio stations around the country with his eclectic daily news roundups and little editorial asides, as in this broadcast from October 1984. President Reagan is quoting mostly Mondale's voting record in the Senate, where Mondale voted 16 times to increase taxes. By the way, the president used to be a broadcaster, and uh, today he told Ohio broadcasters that local stations, radio and television, that local stations are providing a needed alternative to the networks, particularly in their perspective on news. Amen. And, of course, around the country, then as now, evangelical Christian stations reach tens of millions with their messages from charismatic preachers. Now, speaking for Christ and against communism, here is Billy James Hargis. This is the way I see communism. They're not going to try to overthrow this government until we're bankrupt, until we have recession and depression, until our money's gone with our welfare state programs, our socialistic legislation, all these federal aid programs, and all this foreign aid commitments, and our commitments to the United Nations, and these international commitments, all of which are not stopping communism, but are certainly bankrupting the United States. In 1969, a Hargis broadcast became the subject of a Fairness Doctrine complaint. He attacked a writer named Fred Cook, who demanded equal time from Red Lion Broadcasting, one of the local stations which ran Hargis's program. The station agreed, but wanted him to pay for his airtime, the same rate as any advertiser. Cook sued, demanding a free right of reply. The FCC backed him. The case went to the Supreme Court. The court ruled in Cook's favour. A few years later, the FCC removed the broadcast license of another preacher, Carl McIntyre, who actually owned his station. But these cases were the exception rather than the rule, according to political scientist Frankie Clogston. In the entire 40 years that the Fairness Doctrine was in operation, there was practically no enforcement. They enforced it with a wink and a nod, and they um, simply didn't have the manpower to be investigating what was out there on the AM spectrum, and uh, certainly they would have found a lot of outlets, probably a lot more Carl McIntyres if they had that ability. Frankly, that's one reason, yet another reason, why many people who were for the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine said that, in fact, it was the only practical choice because enforcement was just infeasible. Nevertheless, the Fairness Doctrine's very existence tempered the wilder shores of political broadcasting that would re-emerge a decade later, after it was scrapped. When Ronald Reagan took office in 1981, the Fairness Doctrine's days were numbered. He appointed a new head of the FCC, Mark Fowler. Uh, when we decided to uh, eliminate the Fairness Doctrine, I started talking about it and giving speeches on it. That was the first step to get the public opinion on board. But opinion among Reagan's closest advisers was against repeal. They thought the Fairness Doctrine was all that was restraining the three networks, seen as liberal, from full-out war on the president. Its existence meant that someone like Pat Buchanan, a pugnacious and popular right-wing voice, might be interviewed for balance in network reports. I was asked to go over to the White House to give the president a briefing on it. There was a long list of people, their advisors of the, uh, the president. They were all staring darts at me as if, how could you do such a thing uh, as I came into the room, which 
actually made me kind of laugh inside, but uh, sat down with the president. He sat right next to me. He asked me if I could just explain what we were doing, and I went through the whole thing, and I said, really, Mr. President, this is really taking your philosophy of freedom and applying it, in this case, to broadcast content and the Fairness Doctrine and the First Amendment. And then some of the advisors spoke up and said, well, Mr. President, you know, this may be something that is good policy from your standpoint, and certainly Mark's uh, proposal reflects your philosophy, but this is not good for you politically. They are going to basically tear you to pieces. And President Reagan looked for a second at me, he winked, he looked back at the group, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, well, you know, they can hang me for 32 things already. This is just number 33. I'm going to uh, back Mark on this. The repeal train had left the station. A few months later, President Reagan allowed himself a little victory lap at the National Association of Broadcasters convention. For those of you with television stations, I have an announcement. As you know, I've never liked big government, and that was one of the reasons I was opposed to the so-called fairness doctrine, as you've already been told. And I think you will agree there's no reason to substitute the judgment of Washington bureaucrats for that of professional broadcasters. What happened next was completely unexpected, according to Frankie Clogston. I talked to members of the FCC commission. They said that they certainly did not see that there was, uh, for example, any kind of conservative radio that was on the horizon. They did not understand or foresee that there was any kind of pent-up demand that there might be lurking in the shadows, for example, uh, Rush Limbaugh's. If the commissioners didn't know that this audience existed, they weren't paying attention to the world in which Paul Harvey and Billy James Hargis operated. But by 1994, they knew, and so did the rest of America. July 4th weekend, 1994, New York Governor Mario Cuomo gave the keynote speech at the annual convention of the national radio talk show hosts, where he noted, In 1988, the country had 300 all-talk stations. Six years later, we have three times as many. That's six years later. Where's the disconnect? Sudden? In six years? Maybe it's more than just a sense of alienation. More than 900 talk shows, and that's not counting the hundreds of talk programs on stations with mixed formats. Then Cuomo, Liberal Democrat's prince over the water, surprised many by his full-throated backing for the conservative fruit of the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine. More frightening than anything that's said on the radio to me is this. In trying to allay that fear and frustration, some Americans will try to kill or to mute the voices of the people they think are the bad guys and are going to try to use government to do it. Now, that's more frightening than the scary opinions and attitudes that I see. The current movement... Because the conclusion's easy. On the fairness doctrine, I'm opposed to it. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech 
or of the press. Cuomo's views are echoed today by Mark Fowler. The question is fair or free. That's what it comes down to. And what that means is that we are going to have abuses, we're so-called quote-unquote. We're going to have people on who are to the far right, to the far left, who are Nazis, who are communists, expressing their viewpoints. But who is to determine what the truth is? Is it the bureaucrats in government? Or do we rely on the common man and his inherent sensibilities to figure out from all the welder of the various diverse viewpoints what is true and what he or she believes? Perhaps it's the word fair that bothered so many conservatives. Life isn't fair is a common repost from American conservatives when asked about why they want to eliminate social welfare programs. That's just one example of how the divisions in America extend into language. Conservatives use words differently to liberals, according to Professor Kevin Cruz, a specialist in modern American conservatism. They understand freedom and liberty in a very particular sense. Freedom and liberty are, are certainly important catchwords in American political culture and uh, have had a long history. But for modern conservatives, they usually mean liberty and freedom in a particularly narrow sense. It is a freedom from government, a freedom to, especially in the economic sphere, to operate without the intervention of the government. It is a trust in free enterprise, uh, a belief in the primacy of capitalism, a faith in the wisdom and uh, the ultimate power of free markets overall. Uh, so the fairness doctrine was something that, uh, that clearly stood in opposition uh, to those uh, purported ideals. It certainly stood in the way of making money. There was a huge audience for right-wing talk radio, and stations quickly shifted to all talk formats. Within a few years of the Fairness Doctrine's demise, Rush Limbaugh had become a pop culture and political phenomenon. Limbaugh had even acquired a biographer, Paul Colford, who I interviewed for the World Service back in 1993. Rush comes from a household uh, where his father, uh, Rush Limbaugh Jr., was very much a pillar of the Republican Party in southeast Missouri. Uh, he is a man who walked Richard Nixon down Main Street in 1952 when Nixon was running for vice president with uh, Dwight Eisenhower. This was a, a warm household from all accounts, but it was also a household where the father spent a good deal of time at the breakfast and the dinner table imparting rather conservative, unshakable beliefs uh, as he saw them uh, in American politics. A man who would talk back to the evening news uh, with his two sons uh, seated with him, uh, taking all of this in. So Rush Limbaugh, who is heard on American airwaves today, is very much an echo of his father. This is Limbaugh from 1993. The production techniques are modern, the attitude is irreverent, but the demagoguery harkens back to the 1930s, when Father Coughlin and others built massive audiences. And I would like to again renew here my plea that I made yesterday and last night on both radio and TV, and that's this. All of you anti-NAFTA people, please believe me when I tell, and I respect your opinion on that, and I understand why in your hearts you oppose it. All I'm asking you is this. Please give some of us who are opposed to socialism some of your energy. 
please take some of that anti-NAFTA energy and divert it, if you will, to opposing the socialism and its conquering of the United States of America that is being sponsored by the Clinton administration. I am tired of soft-selling the words. I'm tired of kind of pussyfooting around it. This is nothing more than blatant, blatant socialism. If you doubt that, if you think that's fear-mongering, just wait until you hear some of the details that have been gleaned from the health plan's pages itself. I mean, the report that was sent to Congress. You know, they say that you people march in lockstep with me. That you're nothing but a mindless bunch of robots, mind-numbed, who accept anything I say. It's not true. You know who are the mind-numbed robots in this country? The press and Congress. When Hillary's husband says it, they echo it. But there is this show, and when we come back after the break, the details that begin the collapse of the plan, hopefully. There is one element in the argument about free speech on the airwaves that was overlooked when the Fairness Doctrine was repealed. The raw power of broadcasting. There was always a big concern that broadcasting would be very powerful and that it would kind of upset the political balance or the political order. Daniel Hallen, professor of communications at the University of California, San Diego. The forms of broadcasting, the way it presents the news, they're very different from those of print, you know. Broadcasting is personal, so rather than being anonymous text, you have a presenter, often very charismatic, uh, who is has a relationship with the audience, and that was seen as very powerful. Television exists in time rather than space. News is not just information, right? But it also conveys a narrative and an interpretation. And those things, the narrative and the interpretation, they're strong in television news in a way that they are often not in print. And why does this matter? Because in this powerful, emotional way of transmitting news, information, and ideas can be found the seed of social division, which in some countries has helped to fuel civil war and worse. In 1994, Rwanda collapsed into a genocidal civil war. Radio RTLM urged on the majority Hutu population as they slaughtered around 800,000 Tutsi fellow citizens in just a few months. Former BBC correspondent John Silverman, now a professor at the University of Bedford, covered the war crimes trials in Rwanda a decade later. The propaganda, the dehumanizing of the Tutsi, the other, had been going on for many years. Silverman has a precise view of how broadcasting works to undo a society. Radio particularly, and, and to a certain extent television, does have a, a visceral effect on uh, people's minds. You know, there's a saying, I think, from the UNESCO charter that wars start in the minds of men. And broadcasting does have quite a, a significant influence on, on the minds. And so, it, although it can't create divisions from a standing start, as it were, 
it can certainly exacerbate them, and that's what's happened down the years. Silverman's view is echoed by Bosnian journalist Sead Numanovic. For months before former Yugoslavia disintegrated, newspapers had allied themselves with one of the country's national ethnic religious communities, propagandizing a separatist point of view. The divisions inside Yugoslavia had always been there, and the media exploited them. But when the campaign moved to radio and television, that's when Numanovic became scared. I realized that it is going to create a chaos, that it's going to mobilize people to kill each other. I knew that this is going to end up in a bloodshed. People didn't think about the consequences. The emotions were high. People are kind of living the uh, national renaissance dream. And they felt that they are, for some reasons, much more valuable than the others, and they really enjoyed it. They didn't think rationally. What happened in, uh, afterwards was the kind of a explosion of the nationalistic sentiments. The degree to which broadcast news could make people forsake factual reality still astonishes Numanovic. One pretty well-known journalist who, who worked with the TV Sarajevo became a journalist of the Serbs Bosnian Serbs TV station reporting that Bosniaks in Sarajevo taking the Serbs children and throwing them into the zoo to the lions. And I, I, I couldn't believe it was unbelievable. I, I cannot even now uh, express clearly myself of, out of shock. The fact was that the Sarajevo Zoo didn't even have a lions. By the mid-1990s in America, it was clear that beyond the Fairness Doctrine's repeal, there had been epochal change in media in other ways. UC San Diego professor Daniel Hallen. You know, it was a very broad change. It was a change in economics because we were shifting toward multi-channel media with lots of media competing with one another. It was a change in politics because we were shifting toward much more polarized politics. And I would say it was also a change in culture, you know, because we were shifting from the kind of modernist culture of believing in expertise and neutrality and information toward postmodernist culture that's much more skeptical and that values subjectivity and so on. Professor Hallen, author of We Keep America on Top of the World, Television News and the Public Sphere, emphasizes the vast expansion of potential broadcast outlets as the key to understanding the current media-driven division in the U.S. Yeah, the commercial aspect is is a big part of it. So in a period when you had three television networks, there wasn't a business incentive to target audiences based on partisan identity. Um, but when you have cable television and multiple channels, then that becomes a good bi business strategy to target audiences based on, on political identity. So that is a, a really important force for change. Two people understood the possibilities of making money through partisanship better than anyone else. Roger Ailes, who for a while produced Rush Limbaugh on TV, and Rupert Murdoch. Good morning. Welcome to Fox News Channel. This is Fox News Now. All the news you need in 15 minutes. Good morning, everyone. I'm Alison Costarini. Murdoch's money and Ailes' nows created Fox News. Its slogan 
fair and balanced is the paradigm of postmodern irony. Fox has become the most important force in broadcast journalism, not necessarily in terms of audience size, but in terms of influence and critically for Rupert Murdoch's business empire, profitability, an estimated $2 billion in revenue in 2019. Starting a partisan news information ideas outlet is not a license to print money, however. Fox News, even its detractors admit, is highly professional. The same could not be said of the one big money attempt by liberal broadcasters to get in the game. Three, two... Broadcasting from an underground bunker 3,500 feet below Dick Cheney's bunker, Air America Radio is on the air. I'm Al Franken, and welcome to The O'Franken Factor. Air America launched on March 31, 2004. Its first program was hosted by comedian and author Al Franken. Today is both an ending and a beginning. An end to the right-wing dominance of talk radio. The beginning of a battle for truth, a battle for justice, a battle indeed for America itself. Not to be grandiose. Al Franken was already a well-known figure of progressive views when he was approached by the financial backers of the startup to host his flagship show. Franken had written the best-selling Rush Limbaugh is a Big Fat Idiot and was at work on a book about Fox News. It happened while I was researching lies and lying liars who tell them a fair and balanced look at the right. And that was about Fox. I mean, people said to me, you, you can't call people liars. And I said, well, they're lying. While I was doing that, I was approached to, to do Air America. And I was thinking about doing it and then decided to do it. I mean, obviously, from researching Rush, I knew the power of right-wing radio and that we needed to counter him. Air America failed, in the host's view, for the usual reasons a new business fails. Insufficient capitalization. Basically, if you look at Fox... You know, they lost a billion dollars <laughs> to get going, right? We, we ran out of money like three weeks in. That was unfortunate because people looked at the immediate problems that we had and said, well, I guess there's no place for progressive radio. Or there's just a lot of wank about it all. Air America crashed and burned, although several of its on-air stars went on to success in other branches of media. Mark Marin is an extremely popular podcaster. Rachel Maddow is the star of MSNBC, a much better-funded liberal repulse to Fox News. As for Franken, he's a glutton for punishment. He became a politician and was elected twice to the U.S. Senate from his home state of Minnesota. In the past decade, business has continued to have more influence on broadcast free speech than ever before. Not just the fairness doctrine disappeared during the Reagan years. Rules on media ownership, how many stations any one company can own, were relaxed. Sinclair Broadcasting owns close to 200 stations coast to coast, each with its own local news operation. The owners of Sinclair are firm supporters of Donald Trump. Shortly after his election, they started issuing must-run segments and corporate messages from their headquarters in Baltimore. 
every news anchor was forced to read out these messages. Deadspin Online Magazine made a mashup out of them. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media outlets This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. Must-run comment was also being sent from HQ, the idea being that the comments should run during newscasts, like this one from Mark Hyman. I've got a message for certain students. Listen up closely, Snowflake. Yes, I'm talking to you. You, the social justice warrior who whines for trigger warnings and safe spaces, not grown up enough to deal with the facts, then hunker down in your room and Snapchat the day away with other social justice warriors. College isn't a babysitting service. It's time to grow up, Snowflake. Another commentator is Boris Epstein, a former Trump media advisor. Some critics would have you believe that my experience somehow disqualifies me from providing you with my analysis and commentary. But here's a question. Wouldn't you want someone talking to you about politics only if he had actually worked in politics and knew the people he was talking about? I know that I would want someone giving opinions about medicine only if there were an actual doctor. In terms of my analysis playing during your local news, as you see, my segments are very clearly marked as commentary. The same cannot be said for cable and broadcast news hosts who inject their opinions and bias into news coverage all the time without drawing any lines between them. Here's the bottom line. I am proud to be the chief political analyst at Sinclair. My goal with every segment is to tell you facts which you may not already know, and then my take on those facts. I am thrilled to keep sharing the truth and my perspective with you. As it turned out, newsroom staff at one Sinclair station, KOMO in Seattle, were not thrilled. The uh, company began to put on their opinion pieces on the broadcast. Dave Tweddle works for IATSE, the trade union representing news cameramen. And it was, they were called must-runs, and this offended uh, many of the journalists and photographers who had uh, taken great pride in developing what they considered credibility. And there's some scholarly research to back them up that local television has immense credibility. When you put opinions and contentious opinions into or adjacent to the newscast, and when visibly it looks like a newscast, it undermines your credibility. The Seattle population is... Uh, probably as far left as, as any population in the United States. And you, and you come in and start using terms like snowflake. And you, if you don't like uh, being called a bad name, just tough it up. And that, that sort of thing. And it just really caused problems. And people working for the station uh, would catch direct confrontation from the public about not only just those political things, about Sinclair in general. Basically, right-wing politics in Seattle was a very poor sale. People stopped tuning in to KOMO because of Epstein's commentaries. Station management had to run them, but started putting them on in the pre-dawn hours. Ultimately, Epstein was taken off the air altogether by Sinclair Management and reassigned to the sales department. This is yet another example of the most basic rule that governs American broadcasting, according to Tweddle. 
it's clear to me, just as a citizen of the country and as somebody who is involved in American media, that the corporations are looking for, for advertising revenue. But when you license a broadcast frequency from the federal government, in order to make money, you got to have an audience. And if you're trying to appeal to everybody simultaneously, you're, you're going to wind up having everybody turn off eventually. Sinclair hasn't stopped trying to slip messages from corporate HQ to its stations. In July 2020, it shipped an America This Week segment critical of Dr. Anthony Fauci, the best-known member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. The lead interview was conspiracy theorist Dr. Judy Mikovits. Dr. Mikovits, tell me about what the what you believe Dr. Fauci has done wrong. I believe Dr. Fauci has manufactured the coronaviruses in monkey cell lines and shipped them from and paid for and shipped um, the, the cell lines to Wuhan, China. The segment was eventually pulled before airtime, but not before clips flooded social media. A house divided against itself cannot stand. A media divided can only deepen the forces that are driving Americans apart. Since covering the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide, former BBC man John Silverman has spent enough time in America to be worried by what he sees from the many networks that say they are giving their viewers the news. They are morphing from networks which have a kind of partisan outlook into networks which are dangerously close to spewing out propaganda. And in fact, in, in the case of Fox News, I wouldn't have any hesitation in calling it now a state broadcaster. It is so incestuously close to the administration and to Trump himself that you couldn't put a cigarette paper between the views of many of its broadcasters and the president. And indeed, he speaks to people like Sean Hannity apparently on a daily basis. But I think the dangerous thing is that it, it has become to normalize broadcast output in the States. And networks like CNN, which started out 40 years ago as a straight news, straight down the line news platform, has adopted a fairly anti-Trump stance on most issues. And so does uh, MSNBC. And they are pandering to their core audiences. And I think that's where there is a link uh, between um, what happened in Rwanda and what happened in Bosnia, that when you pander to your core audience, when you only tell them what you know they want to hear, you're getting very dangerous to um, inciting them or justifying what they do. And sometimes what they do can be extremely dangerous. And in the case of Rwanda, of course, it, it was genocide. Princeton's Kevin Cruz looks back to the 1930s and World War II and regrets that people have forgotten the bitter lessons learned then. This is the problem that we have with uh, a lot of these laws from this, from this era that are put into place and work and work well. They achieve their purpose. And then we as a nation forget the reason for them. And so... Uh, the, the Fairness Doctrine is repealed. We go back to that earlier era of kind of hyper-partisanship on the radio and, air, you know, return from Rush Limbaugh back to Father Coughlin. Uh, the same thing happened with other policies. You know, think about when uh, the, the New Deal came in a few years before that and had uh, passed things like the Glass-Steagall Act, which separated investment banking from commercial banking. 
and it provided stability to the economy for decades thereafter. And then what happens? Congress in the late 90s uh, repeals that measure and the investment banks get back uh, into kind of making risky bets and we get the financial meltdown. Everybody wonders what happened. Well, because we forgot why the rules were in place uh, and they get, they get ripped up without any thought to, to why they've been put down. But he doesn't see reinstating the doctrine as a possibility. It can't be a return to the fairness doctrine. That ship has sailed. And if you were to re return the policy back as it was, again, it would only govern talk radio and, uh, and broadcast television. Cable TV, the internet, social media would all still be wildly ungoverned. Uh, there are proposals, I think, which might uh, reach the same end, which would be to, say, state that certain social media companies like Facebook and Twitter are responsible for the content that their users put out there, to treat them as media outlets. Uh, who have to be uh, have some have some kind of accountability for what what spreads on there that might cut down uh, on some of the disinformation in terms of the partisanship and the polarization uh, that's I think back where we're at I, I don't see a way around that at the moment I mean ultimately the uh, the answer here lies with uh, in the in the same place in which all these rules have been affected in thinking about what the public wants and what the public needs uh, and so I do think that the same kind of public demand that seemed to uh, give rise to the Rush Limbaugh's of talk radio and the copycats on Fox News, if there's a public demand for a more responsible, more measured media, uh, we'll see that. Um, I'm not sure how we get to that point, but but that's ultimately, I think, what's what's going to have to happen. The, uh, ironically, the conservative faith in the market uh, might be what ends uh, uh, this domination of, of conservative media if the market itself shifts. Back in 1994, then-New York Governor Mario Cuomo tried to appeal to the better angels of talk show hosts. Nothing instructs like electronic media. There is no school anywhere in the country that teaches, no teacher that teaches, no priest, no imam, no rabbi, no nun, no ethical humanist that teaches the way radio and television teach every day for better or for worse, or occasionally indifferently, but always instructing our children. That is fantastic power. Cuomo tried to strike a bargain with his fellow talkers. And if you say, yeah, but our people want the negative voices and that's what's selling, well, let's see, let's try a sweeter voice here and see what happens. Maybe there is lurking out there a kind of fatigued part of this group that's ready to move in another direction. Let's give them the chance. Let, let's, let's call the owners and the shareholders together and take a little chance here, because it is getting kind of ugly and one-sided. Let's try to even it up ourselves. And I would urge the broadcasters to think about that. I would urge you always to keep in mind the awesome extent of your power and the corresponding damage you can inflict through its misuse. But the sweet never happened. There is no money in it. We're screwed. Former Senator Al Franken. There's no baseline for the truth anymore. There's really two universes of information. You know, there's so much propaganda. When Franken was in the Senate, he did try to get his colleagues to consider some sort of re-regulation of broadcast speech. The FCC could fine you for saying the F word, right? You could get fined <laughs> for swearing. So what I wanted to do was say, well, they can fine you for lying. And they can't find you for lying the first time. They, someone has to identify an actual lie, a provable actual lie, 
and go to the FCC and saying, Sean Hannity said this, and go to him and warn him that you can't say that again. You can't say that lie. And if you do, we'll fine you. But, you know, obviously they lie all the time. Indeed they do. And people are still listening, freely, avidly. Rush Limbaugh, fighting off stage four cancer, is still making it to the studio. Folks, this coronavirus thing, I want to try to put this in perspective for you. It looks like the coronavirus being weaponized as yet another element to bring down Donald Trump. America's divisions are deepening. And as in the 1930s, before the Fairness Doctrine was even dreamed of, right-wing broadcasters with huge audiences, like Glenn Beck, are trading in prejudice and pointing out enemies for their listeners to hate. If you have a degree from any school of journalism, I don't trust you. You have lied over and over and over and over again. You are, you are pointing everyone's direction in the wrong direction. And I echo the words of Donald Trump. You are an enemy to mankind. You are an enemy to man's freedom. What you have done will be remembered a hundred years from now when maybe, possibly, possibly, men are free again after what you have done. You will be remembered in not a kind way. It's very scary what's going on in the U.S. right now, you know. I don't know what to predict about the future, honestly. America approaches the 2020 election a country in fear, a house divided, a media divided.